0: Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. may the lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me the lord grant you the, sorry the lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her no we will return with you to your people but naomi said And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. Over the next
1: uh, five Sunday nights, we're going to work through the book of Ruth together. As uh, many of you know and uh, prayed for me, I was uh, speaking on the book of Ruth for a week in Ireland over the summer, and uh, you give me the chance to do that from time to time and uh, the preparation that goes into that. And I wanted to uh, preach the book here as well as uh, elsewhere. When I made the comment earlier in the service about The new members watching you sing and your encouragement of them. When I stand up here week in, week out, you all sit in the same seats, which is a real godsend for a minister because they know who is here and who isn't. (laughs) Some of you sing with smiles on your faces. Some of you sing with no smile because of the situations in your lives. Some of you cannot even find the capacity to sing because life is so bleak. Some of you even cry from time to time. Ministers uh, cry at funerals and weddings. You know why they do it? Because they watch all sorts of other people do it. The book of Ruth, or Ruth chapter 1, is for people who... Sing and can it be or no condemnation now I dread without really believing it can be true for them, or who sing these words or don't sing them because they feel so bleak and so bitter. Now, the message of the book of Ruth, and uh, I'll resist unpacking that until we get on to the final few studies. Is something like this, that even in the darkest of times, God is sovereignly at work for the good of his people on a big scale, a global scale, a national scale, a church scale. But God, even in the darkest of times, is sovereignly and providentially at work for the good of an individual. It's an ordinary story of country folk. That's the strap line, as hardly any of you Will know, or probably all of you will know, is the archers. An ordinary story of country folk in Ireland, by God's providence, that week one of the episodes of The Archers was entitled on the BBC website, Ruth Makes a Critical Decision. This <laughs> shows <laughs> you God's got a sense of humor. Ruth is an ordinary story of country folk. Every church, by and large is an ordinary story of ordinary folk, and yet caught up in God's purposes. That's one level in the book of Ruth. The other is that God, who is sovereign over all things, comes down into our lives, our ordinary lives. Now, much more on the message of the book in coming weeks. The title of chapter one, and you'll see some headings inside the service sheets, uh, Returning to the Lord. Uh, The title reflects a word that dominates the chapter, the Hebrew word shuv, which means return or turn to the Lord. Shuv, return, turn. It is the Hebrew conversion word or the coming back to the Lord word. In our English translations, the word is translated as turn or return, but it's the same word 12 times. 12 times in a chapter of a book that's as short as this should make us sit up and notice. And so the Holy Spirit, as he works with his word tonight, will be saying things to us like, return, return, return. Somebody listening tonight or somebody listening online, what you need to hear in your life, and you know that, and I don't know that, but you know that, is return, return, come back, come back to the Lord. Or turn for the first time. Ruth chapter 1 is a story in its own right, a story within a bigger story, there are three scenes, always music to the preacher's ears. There really are three here. Scene 1, verses 1 to 5, describes a family who leave Bethlehem in Judah and go to live in the country of Moab for 10 years. Scene 2, verses 1 to 5, describe a family who leave Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, verses 6 to 18, sorry. Scene 2, describes the journey back from Moab to Bethlehem. And then scene 3, verses 19 to 22, we're back in Bethlehem. Firstly, verses 1 to 5, and let me suggest as a heading for these verses, bleak times and bad decisions. Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In the days when the judges ruled. Where? Perhaps the darkest times in the history of the people of God. Through the Exodus, God had miraculously brought them out of slavery in Egypt. God had made a covenant commitment to them. God had promised to be with them. God had promised to provide for them. The promises of a covenant God, all he required of them was trust and obey. It is all God ever requires from his people. Trust and obey. Yet they had turned from God, disobeyed him. God judged them, punished them in their desperation. They had cried to God for help, and God had raised up judges. The word judge means ruler or deliverer. And the period in that, that period of history in God's people is described in the book of Judges, the book that immediately precedes Ruth. At first, the judges restored some stability, but that cycle of turning away from God and disobedience returned, a, a downward spiral It continues through the book of the Judges and the period of history described that by the end of the book of Judges things could not have sunk any lower or any bleaker. Judges chapter 19 describes perhaps the bleakest incident in the history of God's people. You can read it yourself. Terrible, shocking events that happened amongst God's holy people in God's holy land in the days of The Judges ruled the darkest of times. The book of Judges ends, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what they saw fit in their own eyes. Everyone did what they saw fit in their own eyes. In the days the Judges ruled, Ruth 1, in the days the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In the land, The promised land that God had given his people, there was a famine. The land that God had said would be flowing with milk and honey, there was a famine, Bethlehem, means the house of bread. But now the cupboards are bare. And then the narrative focuses in on one family, a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, Elimelech, Naomi, Maland, and Killian. And on the face of it, humanly speaking, the decision seemed reasonable to leave a place where there was famine and go to a place where there would be food on the table. Elimelech would not have come to that decision lightly or casually. It was a major move for the family. But whatever his motivations or intentions, it was a bad decision. Why? Because he left the place God had given them, the promised land. He went to Moab, a place where God had said, don't go to Moab. His name, Elimelech, means the Lord is my king. But his actions tell a different story. He should have stayed in Bethlehem in Judah. It would not have been easy because there was famine in the land, but he should have stayed, trust and obey. He should have seen why the famine had come. He should have seen, he should have known from God's word that the heavens will be like brass that the waters will be stopped up, that the harvest will be blighted when God's judgment is on his people. He should have known that he should have with the others returned to the Lord in humble repentance that the house of bread once again would have had bread. And That was the time, in the days in which the judges ruled, where there was famine in the land, that the amber warning lights of warning were switched on. And Elimelech, instead of returning or turning to the Lord in repentance, turned away from God. He did what was right in his own eyes. Now, you might have thought that, uh, had he thought about his decision, what if his sons fell for Moabite women and married them and had children? Again, God's Word had spoken against that. What of the generations to come? And I wonder if you had called Elimelech when he left Bethlehem, and he said, Elimelech, come over here. And you he came across and You said, are you sure, Elimelech, this is the right thing to do? Are you really sure? You know what I think he would have said? It's fine. We're just going for a short time. We'll be back soon. But a short time, as it always does, turned into a long time. And they settled in that far away land, far from the Lord. Now, for us in our period of salvation history, what does this mean? It means walking away from Jesus and his word. And like Elimelech, I mean, you think of Elimelech as he looked at the famine, as he looked at his kids, as he looked at the prospects in that other kingdom. It is entirely understandable humanly that he left that and went for that. But it was wrong. For us, in the dark days in which we live, in the West, which are pretty much like the days in which the judges ruled amongst the people of God, the easiest thing in the world would be to walk away from Jesus and His word just a little step for a short time. A major step or a little step that leads to a bigger step. It might be in a very simple way, for example, in the realm of relationships, a Christian marrying someone who is not a Christian. Now, there's a sensitive area. It is so easy to say it's okay. In a year or so, that person may come to faith, and they might well do, but they might not. It might be misplaced priorities in life, decisions made purely for economic or material gain, or that job I've always wanted, decisions made purely for comfort. People often say to me, I'm going to move to another part of Britain for a new job, which is a great thing. And I'll always say to them, rightly so, I think, is that a decision that you're making for a spiritual reason as well as a practical reason? I mean, you've got to live in the real world. People's jobs move. Is it a decision that you're making, for a spiritual reason. That's got to be the driving force. I would say to them, have you found a living church there? People ask me this morning, as they do when they're looking for a new church, uh, we're just looking around and uh, <laughs> and I say, well, that's great because uh, we all love each other in the city and there's lots of great churches. And, uh, I mean, it's true, that is true. There's a genuine partnership. I always say to them this, do not make your decision in a Selfish way. Make your decision in a selfless way. Where can you best bless others or serve others? Now, uh, is it right for me to go and live in that country? Here's another example where it is much harder for my children to hear the gospel and be discipled. It might well be right, but it might well be wrong. I think of a family whom we know well as a family personally who went to live in a country in Europe where the gospel is scarce. They went to live for very humanly speaking, sensible reasons, work, whatever, advancement, promotion, but they knew the gospel was very scarce in that Scandinavian country. And they went at a time when they were not strong in the Lord, they went at a time when people said to them, maybe at the door of the church, are you sure? Five years later, they were going to church intermittently. Ten years later, not at all. Forty years on. They never go, and their children would never even think of going. And yet, in God's providence, providence, 40 years later, contact has been made again, and they're beginning to think that God might be bringing them back. 40 years. Let me suggest one other application of this. In difficult days for the church, where clarity on the gospel and commitment to the word of God is more dissonant, out of step with the culture than it has been in the past, humanly speaking, it would be much easier, and it really would be, to leave a local church you are in, a church and a ministry that is committed to the simple gospel and the Word of God, and go to another church in town that looks similar, but it's just a little bit less clear, less committed to the Word, and it's much easier but wrong. And that's a a classic classic thing, that that, that the the danger to the church in a country, or evangelicalism, is never liberalism. I mean, nobody's going to disappear off to somewhere where there is no gospel. But the gospel without its edge, the gospel without discipleship, because it's easier. And which of us, in our heart of hearts, does not long for a context where it is easier to be a Christian? Preaching Ruth 1 rightly, we should all be able to nearly be persuaded that Elimelech did the right thing. One of the most, one of the comments that I hear from time to time that i be most distrustful of from people is God has told me to or God has called me to. The only way we can weigh up decisions is with the Bible in our hands and in a living church and by talking to God's people and by people praying for us as we make them. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that if you're sitting here, and almost certainly in a congregation, there's always some, whatever you say, it, there's somebody there. That you're thinking, I'm going to go and work in that part of England or Wales or another country. And yes, it's promotion. And it might well be the right thing for you, spiritually. But you need to examine your motivations and your hearts. In the realm of relationships. In the realm of being out there in the world. The first point of Ruth is to say to us, do not leave the house of bread. Do not leave the side of God and go and live in Moab. Do not go down that road that leads to Moab. Do not turn away from the Lord. Do not turn away from his word and his gospel. Now, I guess at first when they arrived in Moab, things would have seemed better. They would have had food on the table. But then tragedy struck. Elimelech died, verse 3. Naomi was left with a husband, empty of a husband. But she had her two boys, malan and Kilian, who would care for her boys married more about women, Orpah and Ruth. And then tragedy struck again after they had lived there about ten years. Both Malin and Killian also died. Notice in God's word, the length of time. You know, little verse, ten years. Ten years. Naomi had lost her husband, her boys. Orpah and Ruth widowed with no children. Three widows. A dark, dark time in this family. It doesn't really get any more difficult. The deep pain, the loss. The emptiness that these women felt. I was at a, a Thanksgiving service yesterday for a man who died uh, and somebody gave a eulogy at the funeral and they, they, they stood up and they said, I know how you feel to this family because I buried my father when I was 16 and I buried two of my three children and none of us in that room were going to say he didn't know... And you need to understand the the depth of despair that this woman, Naomi, would have felt. The husband that she had loved and the boys that she had cradled in her arms had all gone. Now, question, did these things happen because of their disobedience? We can't answer that question glibly or easily. The answer is we don't know. And that's not a cop-out. I think we can't say and we don't know. The Lord allowed them to happen. He is sovereign over all things. Let me quote to you from Naomi, verse 20. Just glance forward to that. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It would be foolish for us to draw any straight lines. But it would be foolish for us to say the decisions we take that are wrong, that there are not sometimes very difficult and sober consequences of them. What we do know, though, is this, that in that distant land, in her darkness, in her pain, and in her sorrow, the Lord came to Naomi to bring her back, to bring her home, because that is the kind of God he is. When the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, loses just one of his sheep, You only understand that parable when you've been the one sheep. I don't think you understand it if you're one of the 99 just happily grazing around the pasture. Suddenly you realize in life, I've done it. Many of you have done it, I guess, that you suddenly realize that you are the one sheep in that parable and the Lord has found you and brought you back. Because that's what a good shepherd does. Here's uh, George Matheson. Now, I'm an oldie getting that way, and the old hymns are the best when it comes to stuff like this. I think they probably are, and uh, it's very striking that uh, people like Getty and Townend, these great hymn writers, and we thank God for them, they're, they're, they're trying to bring alive a hymnology again that is lamenting, because that's life. Or oh, love you know how you say that, O love that will not let me go. It should be sung, O oh, love that just will not let me go. <laughs> Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will not let me go. And this think how far God's fingers had to reach into Moab to this woman Naomi. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee, because the Lord will not let my heart close. I trace the rainbow through the rain, and feel the promise is not vain. The Lord sought her in her pain. It is what he does. It is what he might be doing with you. Now, let me just say at that point, if the Lord is doing that with you, it will never feel like you go from uh, that bleakness, that distance from God, uh, to being by his side quickly. It took Naomi a long time before the flicker of a smile came on her lips. I I think it was probably, and if you know the story of Ruth in chapter 2 or chapter 3, Ruth goes off to glean in the fields and And Naomi expected her to come back with a crisp packet full size of barley, something like that. And she kind of humps in this 22 kilogram sack. And she says, where have you been? And it all begins to click. And you can just see only then a smile that God is actually, actually going to bless her and keep his promises possible that our bleakness, our pain, would turn to fullness? The Lord brought her back. Now, second point, uh, returning to the Lord, verses 6 to 19. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come, uh, just to say that in Ireland, uh, in Port Stuart, there were two large clock towers adjacent to the convention tent that weren't quite timed precisely. So at 12 o'clock, and if he didn't finish at 12 o'clock, Boom, boom, the clock. And by the time you got a 1202, the other one started and everyone just walked out. So uh, there are no clocks here, thankfully. I didn't have time to say that. Returning to the Lord. When Naomi, verse 6, heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing... How does she hear? How does she hear? Because someone told her. (laughs) It's a very practical point. How do you come back to the Lord? What did Roger say? What is the means of grace we are the means of grace so very often somebody going to somebody who is away from the Lord and saying come back, come back to church with me, come on that's it somebody told her but it's the Lord who wanted her to hear when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come she set out from Moab to return with her two daughters-in-law she heard that the famine had come to an end it was the Lord's doing We could assume that God's people had repented. Naomi does the same. She returns to the Lord. She left the place where she had been living, Moab, physically, spiritually, far from him, and set out on the road that would take them back. The hardest bit, I think, was the first step on that road back. The hardest thing to do in life is to turn round. The hardest thing to do is to say, yes, I will come. I bet there was much soul-searching on that road. We'll not speculate. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened. Now, what might it be in terms of your or my return to the Lord? It might be that we have walked away from Him. might well be the case if you're here or listening online. It might, though, just be a coming back to a seriousness about the Lord, to love for the Lord that is lost, to a zeal for his work and his glory that has grown cold. One of the greatest stages of the Christian life is apathy. It's not that you go from volume four to volume one, it's you go from four to three to two and hover around two for 20 years. Apathy, indifference. How do you know apathy? When you time sermons. That's not true. (laughs) Or when you become... Selfish about what you like and dislike, when you become discontented and critical, when you always sing hymns with mirth and gladness, because we can't all do that all the time. One of the great old hymns by William Cowper, um, he is a, a hymn writer that lives in the realm of bitter providence's, Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Uh, Somebody's here tonight who became a Christian four months ago, and I introduced him to somebody who's new in church this morning, and I said he became a Christian four months ago, and the smile just burst onto his face still. First love. Then we come to a crossroads. Naomi had a decision to make, but so did her two daughters in law. On the journey back, we're told of a heartfelt conversation Naomi had with Orpah and Ruth. Tragedy had thrown them together. I mean, it really had. And they must have had a strong bond for each other. You know, as as Orpah and Ruth stood by their mother in law at uh, Elimelech's funeral, and then she stood by them at their husband's funeral. I mean, they must have had a tight bond. And the the real conversation they had to have, you can imagine them not working up the courage to have it for a long time on the road back. Then Naomi said to her, in Law, verse 8, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest. Now, there is a spiritual meaning and significance in all these conversations and decisions, but let's not forget this is real life too. Naomi feels their pain, their loss of their husbands. She wants them to find that love and protection and hope. A widow in the ancient world was the most vulnerable person, And going back with Naomi to Bethlehem, humanly speaking, was just too costly a decision for them to make. Surely that's the sense of this. And from Naomi's perspective, going back to Bethlehem without Elimelech, without Malin and Killian, without any grandchildren to carry on the family name, that was difficult enough for her. But to have these two women beside her, however much she loved them, that would have said it all, reminded her that every day of the bad decisions they had made and the consequences. And then she kissed them goodbye, the end of verse 9, and they wept aloud, it's very poignant, and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. You know, there's an expression of how deeply they loved her. We will go with you, Naomi. We can't leave you. (laughs) Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons? Who could become your husband? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth, would you then wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand had turned against me. Now, we need to understand what she's saying. Ruth and Orpah had absolutely no prospects of marriage in Judah. They just couldn't meet and marry a, a boy in Bethlehem, A Jew. The only possible hope was some kind of outworking of what was called levirate marriage, that Naomi would need to, to, to marry somebody, and, and then she would need to have a, a son, and in fact, twins. And they would have to grow up, and Opa and Ruth would still have to be around, and then marry them, and then they might have a child. And There was just no prospects for them or for the family line. It's completely hopeless. She's saying for the two of you, there are no prospects if you come back with me. And not only that, the Lord's hand has turned against me. She is broken. She is empty. She is bitter. What she is saying to these girls is wrong. She shouldn't be telling them to go back to Moab, but she is. And if we are truly honest, if we are true to our hearts, Can we not understand what she says? That's the reality, you see, of God's Word. It's not simple to make decisions to follow the Lord. And what is God saying then to us? However bleak, however broken you feel, however empty, don't encourage someone. Perhaps someone you love and want the best for, don't encourage them for any reason. To go back to Moab. I've seen people over the years who are strong Christians encourage their children to go back to the kingdoms of this world because there are better prospects. Or not overtly, but just to let them go. It'll be fine. I had somebody in Port Stewart, an elderly man, who said they had encouraged one of their children to go back to the kingdoms of the world and every day of their life since wished that they had not done so. So we prayed that God would bring them back. Now, if Naomi's decision was about repenting and returning to the Lord for her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, the decision was about turning to the Lord for the first time. For them, it was like a conversion decision. At this physical, emotional, and spiritual crossroads in their lives, would they follow God or not? It's not about following Naomi anymore. You see, it's about following God. What's the the, the equation? Here's the equation at the point of decision about trusting the Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God, the Lord plus Nothing or everything minus the Lord. That's how it is. Any sensible person with their eyes open would go to Moab. Surely that is the obvious place of belonging, identity, security, hope, and the future. The kingdoms of the world look so attractive. They do, don't they? The kingdoms of this world look so attractive. Any sensible person, any person with their eyes open would go and follow after the kingdoms of the world. All that Ruth had to go on was covenant promises. She'd never seen Bethlehem. All she had to go on was covenant promises. Now, there might be somebody listening or here who is at that most important crossroads in your life. What decision will you make? Facing you is the broad road that leads to the kingdoms of this world, and it is broad. Or there is the narrow, bumpy road. John Piper, preaching on Ruth, calls it the narrow, high ridge road through Nebraska. Can imagine what that's like. The broad road, or the narrow road. Yahweh. Plus nothing or everything minus the Lord. One went one way and one went the other way. Orpah disappears off the narrative of history. She chose Moab. And we need to really steel ourselves. To say to her, you did wrong. We long for it to work out for Orpah. But Ruth chose the Lord. She chose life. They wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Ruth clung to her. The word cling there is the covenant word cleave. Naomi has one more go. Luke said, Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. There you see is the spiritual dimension. She is going back to her people and her gods. And what follows is extraordinary, this uh, remarkable speech for Ruth. I think that this book may well be called the book of Naomi, were it not for Ruth's spectacular conversion speech. That swung the editors to call it Ruth. Where had she learned... To speak like this? Where had she? She's speaking where the covenant language of God burned into our mind and heart. Where had she learned to speak? From whom had she learned this? We don't know. I love Ruth to tell me in glory, it was Naomi that told me this. <laughs> that in her bleakness in Moab, Naomi never lost her faith in the Lord. And she told this to Ruth. And Ruth's glorious testimony, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you will die, I will die. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go, she stopped. She is leaving her family, her land. She is facing a life of widowhood and childlessness. She is going to an unknown land. She is a Moabite, going to live amongst the Jewish people. But she speaks the language of faith. She makes a covenant promise. And she's so strong. She's not saying, Naomi, I'm going to go with you, and when you die, I'm going back. She's saying, I want you to, Naomi. It's nothing to do with you anymore. Where you die, I will die. I will die in God's land. This woman is converted. She's converted. And what a costly decision it is. A conversion decision is always a costly decision at the point of conversion. The blessings will come. And what an example she is of godly devotion. Now, remember that word, shoof, shoof, shoof. Return. Return. Or you're listening online or here, turn for the first time. On that crossroads. Maybe you've been at the crossroads for months. Looking that way, looking this way. Turn. Choose life. Finally, verses 19 to 22. Brought back, but bitter and empty. When I was in Ireland, the title of this uh, last little section, I gave it Back in Bethlehem. And uh, all sorts of people spoke to me at the end and they said they were back in Bethlehem, but they kept speaking about the fact that they knew the Lord had brought them back, but they were bitter and empty. And that's really what verses 19 to 22 are saying, brought back, but bitter and empty. So the two women went on their way until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived, the whole town was stirred because of them. Can this be Naomi? Her name, Naomi, is pleasant. I don't think there's any sarcasm here in the part of these women. I think it's shock at seeing her. Her physical appearance would have conveyed the bleakness, the sadness, the bitterness, the emptiness that filled her heart. Naomi, you see, would have right up for singing and can it be that I should gain no condemnation now I dread but I bet you she would have stood and she would not have opened her mouth she believed it but she couldn't sing it she just couldn't sing it she was perhaps too sad even to cry don't call me Naomi call me Mara Because the Lord has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. Notice, I went away, but the Lord has brought me back. The Lord has brought me home. She never denies the existence of God nor his sovereignty. The Lord has brought me back. Why has he, though, so afflicted me? Why has he brought such misfortune upon me? Why is this thorn in my flesh so sharp? I could see no purpose in any of this. I could see no future, no hope. I wonder if there were times when she wished that the Lord had never brought her back. And yet there is hope, there is food in Bethlehem. There's a Redeemer, as we will see. His name is Boaz. And that poor little woman, Ruth, who Naomi has forgotten about, standing by her side. And there are wonderful things to come. But she didn't know that then. And she didn't feel like anything like a rainbow breaking through the rain could happen in her life ever again. And nor can you She had no idea that one day she would hold a little baby boy in her arms again, her Redeemer, whose great-grandson was the king of Israel that the people so desperately needed, whose greater son was the king of glory that the world desperately needed. All she did was she came back. And she was bitter and she was empty, but she was back. And many people, as Christians, find that experience of Naomi absolutely describing them. Striking that in Chalmers' life over the past few years, we've seen many people brought back to the Lord through funerals, through the bleakest and hardest times of life, almost without knowing what is going on in their life. The Lord has brought them back, and bit by bit, they can begin to trace the rainbow through the rain. Many of you will know of the Cameron family. I don't think they would mind me telling you. Murray, who died two years ago, who became a Christian late on in life, reading Mark's gospel in Holyrood Park with the helpful illustrations of a field, no sheep. Then. His daughter, his wife Carol, was always a Christian, but she came back to life. And Blair, their daughter, is like is like Ruth, who made the decision on that bitter road of providence. And what do you do on the bitter road? Do you turn away? Or do you turn to the Lord? It's not that everything is now wonderful, far from it. It's not easy walking on the high road in Nebraska. Let me finish by quoting from William Cowper. He is a man who suffered from depression all his life, an illness that uh, robs people of hope and purpose. I do often talk about that. I, I think it's a, a true thing, and I, and I think it's, it was what dominated his hymn writing, Spurgeon's ministry, people like that, and it's it's a powerful thing. Shortly after he wrote this hymn, he attempted suicide. The story goes that he asked one of his servants to drive him to London Bridge so he could jump off the bridge. Um, I never believed this was true, and, and a number of people have attested that it is. It's a foggy night, and a servant who knew his master well. Maybe they were in the same small group. But he knew him well. I mean, you're not going to know if someone is really struggling unless you know them well, are you? You he pretended to get lost in the fog and decanted William Cowper at the home of his friend John Newton, who, I don't know what he did, but... And then Cowper's words. Listen to these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. I mean, when a footstep is in the sea, you don't, like, see it, do you? It's on. And right upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasured up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. You can't write like that unless you've experienced it. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind this frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. Sweet will be the flower. And that man I told you about who had encouraged his child to go off to this other world said to me that, He lives and breathes the words of these hymns. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Well, how real is the word of God and how real is the gospel? That's Ruth chapter one. The story does not end there. The greatest danger for you sitting here if you feel like Naomi or listening online And I know there are some of you listening online who have never in your Christian life found a way out of Ruth chapter 1. You've never, ever found a way out of bitterness and emptiness. Come back next week and let God lead you forward. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book of Ruth. We thank you for all that it will teach us. We thank you for the realism of your word. We thank you that in our lives, when we experience pain and bitterness and bleakness, we are not alone. We pray, Lord, that we will learn. And we might get to... A Verse like this after five weeks, that in all things, in all things, you are at work for our good. Help us, Lord, perhaps, to understand that verse like we had never understood it before. And if we're at a crossroads, help us to take the road to life. We know it's right. Help us to sing with an honesty (coughs) that is not afraid, sometimes to be quiet, sometimes even to cry, and when the smile breaks open on our hearts, to relish these moments as God sends, help us, because we need you so very desperately for Jesus' sake.